Well, if you uh, would open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, and as you make your way there, I want to ask a question of, of all of you who are here. How many of you consider yourself to be a savvy shopper who can recognize a good deal? Raise your hand. Come on now. Some of you be proud. I know you bargain hunters are out there. All right. Uh, you think you recognize a good deal. Here's, here's a recent list of prices, partial list, prices I ran across in a Smithsonian Magazine article for an outlet in Maryland. Tell me if these are a good deal. $745 for Lake Michigan fish. $731 for creamed spinach. $609 for meat homogenate. I had to look up what that is. Also known as spam. And $761 for a jar of peanut butter. Any bargains on that list? Uh, in case you're curious, this is no ordinary store. It's not even a store for the sort of people with a great deal more in dollars and cents than common sense. Uh, it's actually, this is the shopping list, or part of it, from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which happens to be a federal agency uh, that is tasked with providing carefully analyzed samples of various products to both government agencies as well as manufacturers and scientists. So if you want to test a batch of commercial peanut butter to ensure that it doesn't have harmful ingredients, what you need to do is you need to order the $761 standard reference jar from the NIST, and it, it uses that way you can have a fixed point of reference to evaluate what you have and determine what's there. And if what you have made as a manufacturer is not at least as pure as the government standard, then you need to issue a recall. Uh, now, if you're, unless you're a scientist or a, a big-time manufacturer, you will probably never buy a can of $609 meat homogenate, right? You probably won't ever do that. You probably won't order a $761 jar of peanut butter. But the reason I bring all this up is because it's important that we have a fixed standard, a fixed point of reference uh, as to what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And those standards function as a way of giving us something fixed to measure against. And in the same way, this section of the Sermon on the Mount we're going to look at today, Jesus gives us a fixed point of reference. He gives us the standard, not for peanut butter or for spam or anything else that's kind of silly, but for what is God's holy standard. How good do you have to be to enter into the presence of God. You want to know? Jesus tells you, beginning in uh, chapter 5, verse 17, and, and the verses following. Uh, actually, in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, that's part of His purpose, is to tell you what it means to be holy and righteous before God. And He will provide us with a fixed standard, a fixed point of reference that we can measure ourselves against. 
And by the way, all of you and, and me too are all going to fail the standard. And that's the point, is that Jesus is trying to point out that there is no one righteous, not even one. And therefore, you cannot be good enough to earn God's approval. You need grace. You need a free gift and a free ride to enter into the, the presence of the living God. Amen? And the reason Jesus is giving all these standards is to point out to a group of people who think that they are righteous and holy enough before God that they can earn their way into His presence. And Jesus is wanting to point out to them, no, you can't. And if you think you can, you really don't understand what the standard is. And so Jesus is going to give it to us. Uh, if you've got uh, your Bible there open, Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think what Jesus says here in verse 17 is the key uh, about you know where he's talking about fulfilling the law and the prophets is the key to understanding not just this little section uh, that's set off here in my Bible, uh, verse 17 to, to uh, 20, but also to the rest of what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets is a very Jewish way of referring to the whole Old Testament. Uh, the In Hebrew thought the um, the Old Testament or what we call the Old Testament uh, the, is divided into three sections the law the prophets and the writings okay so the law is the first five books uh, Genesis Exodus Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy the books of Moses uh, the prophets are divided into the former prophets which is Joshua all the way through Nehemiah um, and I think, and then um, Esther is part of the writings. And then you've got uh, the latter prophets, which is everybody from um, Isaiah to Malachi. And then everything else falls into that category of the writings. But they didn't, when they would talk about it, they would just say the law and the prophets. It's kind of a way of talking about the entire Old Testament. All that God had revealed from Genesis through Malachi. And... Uh, Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill everything that is written in the Old Testament. And he does that in three very significant ways. And I want to talk to you about those. The first one is with his life. And Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life. Amen? And in so doing, he, he met every requirement that God had laid down by way of commandment in the Old Testament. He fulfilled every single one. There was never a time where there was a command given in the Scripture that Jesus did not obey it. 
And he, he therefore fulfilled the law and the prophets because he did all that God required with his life. Second way, also very important, that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. He fulfills the law and the prophets in his death. Because the law and the prophets, one of the major points of them is that human beings are sinners and they need a sacrifice to cover over their sin and to make them right with God and to bring them into relationship with God. In his death, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets by dying on the cross as the perfect sacrifice with himself as the perfect priest offering that sacrifice that covers over all sin for all people for all time. And thus there is no longer a need for sacrifice to be offered because the final sacrifice has been offered. Amen? And so men and women may be made right with God because Jesus in His death is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Of God's means in the Old Testament for dealing with sin has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, no matter how many animals were slaughtered, they could never pay the penalty for sin. God accepted them as prefiguring and pointing to the perfect sacrifice that was going to come, which is Jesus himself. And so Jesus, in talking about how he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets, is talking about how the Old Testament points to his death as the final sacrifice that will be acceptable to God, that will cover over sin and establish a new relationship with God through faith. And that all these things are things that the law and the prophets pointed toward. You remember when Jesus is walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? It's a great story. And they're walking for a few hours, and so Jesus has the opportunity to talk about how everything in the Old Testament points forward to him. And so he says, you know, remember when Moses was in the desert for 40 years? Well, I was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And though Moses and the Israelites failed in the desert, I succeeded in the desert and conquered over sin. Remember how Adam and Eve were tempted in a garden and they failed? Well, I am the second Adam who succeeded in the garden of Gethsemane where Adam failed. And I said, not my will, but yours be done. All these things pointed forward to Jesus as the perfect fulfillment. Uh, remember how God said, I'll choose for, your, choose for myself a king after my own heart? Well, David is partial fulfillment of that, but the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, is the greater fulfillment of the king after God's own heart. All of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ and is fulfilled in him. And so, uh, and that's the reason that Jesus therefore emphasizes the permanence and importance of the law and the prophets. He says these, these commands in the law and the prophets will stand until the end of time. And he also underlines it this way. He says, not an iota and not a dot will pass away until everything is accomplished. Now, uh, if, you're not a, if, you're, if you're not a fraternity brother or sister, you probably don't know what an iota is. Okay? But an iota is a Greek letter I. And it's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. So in other words, Jesus is saying, not the smallest letter 
And then he says, not a dot. Now that refers to a little mark that you put in Hebrew underneath certain letters to distinguish them from one another. In Hebrew, you, you have generally the words are three consonant patterns. And you read from right to left, which is weird. If you're an English speaker, that's really strange and hard to get used to. And then you had these little dots and marks underneath to indicate what vowels are supposed to be read there. And some of them have literally one tiny little dot underneath. And that tells you that that's a certain vowel that you're supposed to read. And he says, not even the tiniest little mark will disappear from the law and the prophets until everything is fulfilled. When was the law and the prophets fulfilled? It was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross and rose again to establish a new covenant. In Jesus' death, he fulfills the law and the prophets, creating a new covenant not based on law, but based on grace. Amen? Amen. All right. And, and Jesus also fulfills the law and the prophets in one other really important way that you need to see. But, and it's by making clear what God's standard really is. And lots of people in Jesus' day, including most of the religious leaders, thought that they were right with God because they obeyed God's commands and they kept the law. And they said to themselves and to other people, right relationship with God consists in obeying, at least outwardly, God's list of commands. And as long as you don't violate anything that's specifically prohibited, then you are righteous and holy before God. And what Jesus is going to make clear to them and to us is that that is not true. That merely outward obedience to a list of commands, even to all the commands in the Old Testament, is not simply equivalent with righteousness and holiness because God intends much more than our outward obedience commands he has given by name and real holiness is not equivalent to simply avoiding the list of sins condemned by the law there's much more to the holy life than that and that's why Jesus says here in verse 20 unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven now the reason he makes that point is this the scribes and Pharisees were the righteous religious holy people of the day you know a lot of times we as christians uh we read because we've read the gospels that we know that the the scribes and pharisees are a lot of times opponents of jesus we read them as the villains in the story but in the estimation of all of the people in jesus day these were the good guys these are the people that you should strive to be like these are the people who have their religious stuff together. These are the people who know what they're doing. And the rest of us need to learn from them. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Unless you are more righteous than the best of you, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that comment is meant to have everybody's ears prick up and go, whoa, wait a minute. Hold on just a second. 
the very best of us are not getting in? Well, what about me? Because I probably wouldn't make that list of the very best and most righteous and holy. And if the very best don't get in, then that means the rest of us are without any hope, right? Exactly. Because outward obedience is not enough. Not enough. And Jesus is saying, sorry, the very best righteousness you can produce on your own is simply not sufficient to receive the favor and blessing and forgiveness of God. And to make that point, he's going to give several examples of what people thought was good enough versus what God's standard really is. And the first one he's going to give has to do with anger. And he's going to give several others. We're going to look at at adultery and lust and divorce and oath-taking and all these other things that are also examples of, of what people thought the standard was versus what the standard really is. But the first one he gives is about anger. And, and it, he wants us to see that obeying God is more than just avoiding big sins. It's more than just staying off the nasty list. You know, whatever you think the nasty list is, there's more to a holy life than that. And so he says here, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. So here's a question for you. Where does it say, you shall not murder, and those who murder will be liable to judgment? Answer, in the law. Uh, The sixth commandment is where God forbids murder. That's uh, Exodus chapter 20 is where the Ten Commandments are given, right? Uh, The sixth commandment is you shall not murder. But don't miss what Jesus says here. Because I think this is so interesting. He cites the commandment and cites the punishment that God indicates if you violate it. And then he says, but I say to you. Now, that raises a question in my mind, and it ought to raise one in yours too. What kind of a guy puts his own words in contrast to what God has said? The word but is, if you're a grammarian, that's a contrasting conjunction. In other words, everything over here and then this. But, right? You never want to hear your boss start out a sentence that way. Right? We think you're a wonderful employee and we're really happy with the work you're doing, but... 
You know that what comes after is going to negate what came before, right? <laughs> um, Jesus is saying this. He's saying that His authority is greater than that of the law. What kind of a guy claims that? The only guy who could claim that is the guy who gave the law to start with. Who does Jesus think he is? He thinks he's the lawgiver and lawmaker. And therefore he can offer a contrast between what the law says and what he says. And the contrast that Jesus offers is between merely outward obedience and inner heart level obedience. Uh, it's pretty easy to avoid murdering somebody, right? Most of us will probably go our whole lives and successfully avoid murdering anybody, right? Uh, I did hear Cynthia Swindoll one time ask about Chuck, her husband, famous pastor. <laughs> she said, somebody asked her, so have you guys ever really struggled, you know, and thought about divorce? And she said this, divorce? No. Murder? Yes. <laughs> right? But most of us, some of you can relate to that, uh, but most of us will probably go through our whole lives and never actually murder anybody. And some people who are familiar with the Ten Commandments will actually cite this like it's some kind of a grand qualification. Right? That you'll ask them, so if you died today, do you think you would go to heaven? And they'll say something like this. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. After all, I've never murdered anybody. Like, this is somehow a high bar to get over, right? Like, you know, every other person I know is a murderer, but not me. I mean, I'm really good. <laughs> okay. And Jesus says, no. Uh, okay, great. So you haven't murdered anybody. That's a fairly minimal requirement, right? But the law prohibiting murder, according to Jesus, doesn't just prohibit murder. There's more to it than that. It also prohibits the anger and bitterness that lead to hatred that lead to murder. And so according to Jesus, don't think that you've kept this commandment as long as you haven't murdered anybody. If you want to keep God's commandment, you've got to not just avoid murder, you've got to avoid anger. In fact, you've got to avoid the kind of irritated annoyance with other people that calls them names and insults them. You know, the word raka literally means empty head. Okay? Uh, Jesus says, if, you call, if you've ever called someone a moron, right? I know none of you do that when you're driving. That's just me. Right? <laughs> but, but if you've ever done that, you're liable to the judgment of the living God. True story. Jesus is saying, you think you're a righteous person before God because you haven't murdered anybody? Well, that command includes with it anger and insults and calling somebody an insulting name. Ever done anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, then you're liable to God's judgment and you are guilty of sin. 
such that God and his agents on earth at the time, that is the council, could justly condemn you to death for violating the sixth commandment. And so, in other words, it's not just the so-called big sins like murder that violate God's law and condemn us. It's also all the little so-called lesser sins. And in fact, God's standard is even higher than that. You don't just have to avoid murder and insults and name-calling. True righteousness doesn't just include the sins that you avoid. It also includes the good things that you ought to do that you haven't done yet. And so... So obeying the commandment doesn't just include not murdering anybody and and not um, and not insulting them, not calling them names, etc. Not being angry and wanting to murder them. It also includes the flip side of that of actively pursuing peace with other people. And so he says, verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is one of the places that Jesus makes it clear that if you have sinned against somebody, you need to go make that right before you come into the presence of God that you can't represent like everything between you and God is fine when things between you and someone you have harmed are not fine. That it's literally more important to be at peace with one another than it is to worship Him because you cannot worship Him rightly while you're still at war with someone else. Feeling the pinch on this standard yet? I am. This is a high, high standard to be holy before God. And verse 25 and 26 used to confuse me a little bit. But what I think Jesus is talking about here as I've studied is this, is that we have a need to gain righteousness. And he's using the image of a court case to explain it. And if you're headed to court and you're guilty then you need to find a way to get a plea bargain. Amen? You need to find a way to get a, to get a deal on what's about to happen. Because you're about to be pronounced guilty and then suffer the consequences to have the verdict come down against you. And you need a plea deal. Uh, otherwise, the judge is going to pronounce sentence on you. And here's the reality. All of us, if we go to judgment and we stand before God having not made any other arrangements, guess what's going to happen? The judge is going to open up the books of everything that we have done in our life and, every, and, and also the record of everything we should have done and said and thought that we didn't do. And then he's going to look in the book of life and if we are not found there, then he's going to pronounce this very simple judgment. Guilty. And then Jesus says here, you will not get out till you have paid the last penny. Well, when do you pay for your sin? Never. So when do you escape from God's judgment? 
Never. And so the point he is trying to make is this, is that if you are trying to attain righteousness on your own, you can't do it. And you better figure out how to resolve things with the accuser on the way, because otherwise when you arrive at judgment, you will be pronounced guilty. So what do we need? We better find a way to come to terms with God who will judge us before the judgment comes. Because God requires perfect obedience and He will not accept simply avoiding big sins as a substitute form of righteousness, will He? He will not say, we will not be able to stand before God and say, well, you know, God, I never run around on my wife. I've never stolen anything. I've never lied. I've never murdered anybody. I'm a pretty good dude. And they'll say, well, okay, so let's, let's dig down on those commandments just a little bit. I appreciate you never actually taking a hammer to anybody. But at the same time, have you ever been angry with anybody such that you wanted to? Um, yeah. Okay, how about you ever called anybody a nasty name? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, if, you, if you'd like me to go on, I can, but otherwise i got one word for you. Guilty. Guilty. And that's the point that Jesus is making. He is trying to pop everybody's little bubble of self-justification and self-righteousness. And, and he says, he's saying this to us. You want to be righteous before God? That's fine, i got two words for you. Be perfect. Well, now, God, you've got to understand, there's no way to really be perfect. Oh, I understand perfectly. Amen? He does. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ into the world to fulfill the law and the prophets, to give us a new way of righteousness so that I can, when I stand before God, say this, why should I let you into heaven? And I, and I can say this, well, not based on anything I have done, amen? But because Jesus Christ met the righteous requirements of the law on my behalf, and I put my trust in Him, and therefore I received a righteousness which was not native to me and nothing that I cranked up and produced on my own, but something that was granted to me by grace through faith in Him. That I have met and I have fulfilled the law and the prophets, not based on my righteousness, but on Jesus' righteousness, which was credited to my account. And then the righteousness of Jesus was therefore, as, as to use Paul's term, was imputed to me. It was added to my ledger. So that the righteousness of Christ was transferred to me and my sin was transferred to him. And then after my, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I got something else. I got imparted righteousness too. In other words, that the Spirit of God comes and dwells within me and therefore enables me to obey the commands of God in their fullness 
over time, I progressively begin to obey Jesus more and more and to look more and more like Jesus. So I have both imputed righteousness credited to my account, uh, the righteousness of Christ which cancels out my sin, and also imparted righteousness by which I am freed from the daily presence of sin on an ongoing basis until the day that I stand before God and I receive full righteousness as a child of God. Now, all those things are true. And they are marvelously revealed to us throughout the Scriptures. And Jesus' point is specifically to make it clear that we need that kind of righteousness. That to people who think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. To underline that by God's standard, there are two kinds of people. There are wicked people, and then there is Jesus. And unless you're with Him, you're going to be judged. And so there's three things we need to do with this text in response. Number one, we need to recognize, first of all, that we cannot live up to God's standard. As, uh, as members of my family would say, ain't no way. Ain't no way. <laughs> Not going to happen. We cannot live up to God's standard. How, if we really understand how high above us God's standard really is, that should cleanse us from all our delusions of grandeur. That somehow we're going to live up to it. In fact, our attempts at self-justification and the prideful performance of doing good deeds need to be seen what, for what they really are. That they are pathetic works-based religion that counts for nothing before God. And when we recognize that, it should cause us to search for the solution that God has provided. Because if it's true that man is a sinner and he cannot save himself, then it's also true that we need to look for the solution and the salvation that God has provided. And we need to, therefore, number two, receive Jesus' righteousness by grace through faith. We need a better righteousness than we can crank up on our own. And Jesus has one, thankfully, on offer, freely, as a gift to us. And we receive that gift by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to pay the penalty for my sin and to purchase my, my place in heaven. Amen? Those of you who are in EE ought to be amen in right here. Right? That is what God does for us. That He grants us a righteousness that, is, that we do not possess on our own so that we can be saved by faith in response to God's grace. I love this illustration out of Evangelism Explosion. Um, imagine, if you will, that you are out in the middle of the ocean in a rowboat. And you need to get yourself back to land. Because if you don't get back to land out there in the middle of the ocean, you will die. And so... 
So what religion tells you is, well, you've got two oars, get after it, big boy. Okay? And you just keep stroking away, and eventually you'll get there. Right? You know what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. You know why? Because every time you sin, what you do is you take a drill and you cut a hole in the bottom of your boat. How many sins did you commit already today? I don't know. But I do know this. That a couple things are true. More than you realize. And at a certain point, your boat has taken on enough water that you quit worrying about rowing and you start worrying about bailing. Right? And every time you start to bail and think, I can bail myself out of this, that that in itself is also sin. And so you are cutting even more holes in the bottom of the boat. And just about the point where you realize, you know what? The bottom of this thing is looking more like water than like boat. Jesus comes along in his giant ocean liner and says, would you like a ride back to shore? And some people will say, no, I'm, I'm doing fine. I got this, right? But if you are understand what the Scripture says, you go, you know, I've been tired of rowing around in this leaky tub. I need a, I need a different method. And, by, and what you do when you exercise faith in Jesus Christ is you decide to step out of whatever you've been relying on to work your way to heaven and earn your way into a relationship with God and say, I need a free ride over to shore. And Jesus freely offers it to us and powers us all the way there. And we don't have to do anything except pick out a chase lounge. Right? And sit by the pool. Because he has done it all. He has done it all. And then if you have done all that. If you have understood God's holy standard. And you have received the righteousness of Christ through faith. Then there's one more thing we ought to do in response to this text. You should praise God with your lips. And with a righteous life. I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I have received from him a righteousness that is alien to me that I did not work for, cannot earn, and do not deserve. And I just received it. And God now looks at me and sees not my sin, but my Savior. And his righteousness credited to my account. And we have already come to terms before the judgment. And therefore I am released from any penalty that is due to me on the basis of me and what I have done. And there is, as the scripture says, therefore no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. And if that were all that God had ever done for me, I would have reason to praise Him for all eternity. Amen? So would you. If that is true of you, you have sufficient reason to give praise to God for the rest 
of your life and for all of eternity. But he has done much more than that. And therefore, we have responsibility to respond in, in, in two ways. With praise with our mouth. Part of what we do here on Sunday morning, importantly, is to do that. To with our mouth praise the one who has done so much for us. But number two, when you leave this place, we also praise God. Hopefully with our mouth, but also with our life. Amen? That having been saved and given a righteousness that we did not deserve and cannot earn, that we therefore live a righteous life, not because we are trying to earn God's salvation, but because we have already received it. And that in addition to having righteousness credited to us, we have righteousness given to us by the Holy Spirit. And we therefore try to live the righteous life that God requires, not based on our effort and power, but based on the effort and power given to us in the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Amen? All right. So let's praise God with our lips and our life, and let's pray together. Tony, if you come and lead the band, let's praise God together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your magnificent, marvelous grace. We have received it poured over us and lavished on us and given to us freely. And abundantly. And Father, we we can't we can't earn it. We can't deserve it. We can't work hard enough to impress you in any way. But Jesus Christ is fully impressive because he is fully righteous before you, and in him are fulfilled all the righteousness, all the righteous requirements of the law and the prophets, and given to us by grace as a free gift. Father, we thank you for that free gift. We pray that we might praise you from our hearts with our mouth and that we might live a righteous life before you in response. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.